Hey guys, this is just a quick heads up to say that we will be talking about both rape and sexual assault in the Closer Look segment towards the end of this week's episode. If you don't want to listen, please skip out the Closer Look, but enjoy the rest of the episode this week. Thanks. Welcome back to another episode of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. This is episode five in our six episode mini series. You're listening to your host, Will Davis Coleman, and your other host, Patrick Courtney. What's up, Will? Uh, not too bad. How are you, Pat? I'm good. I'm excited to do this. It's fun. I've enjoyed coming with coming with our fifth. I know. It's going it's so by. quickly. Yeah, we've been talking about this for so long, and then we, the actual recordings are all just going by really quickly. I know. It's like, how long has it taken us? Like, uh, like three months of research. I mean, off and on, obviously. Casually. Yes, yeah. We haven't done three months of solid research. We haven't, <laughs> yeah. we haven't quite. We're got not the that time. slow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but now well, I mean, like... I mean, you know, kind of are, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, we've got lives to lead as well. We don't just live in history. Well, I do, but just not. Anyway, uh, this week, <laughs> well, let's. I'll, we're going to transport you guys all the way back to around where we were last last year last episode so last episode we, ha- we heard about um king gustav the third for third king gustav the third gustav of the fourth was in there got mentioned but yeah gustav the third <laughs> yeah uh and he was um shot at a masked ball in 1792 and this our story takes place in 1793 so uh wow. very oh, similar we really time. haven't moved on very far have we we haven't but it's a very different episode as you will, you guys will find out. <laughs> we assure you, it's a very different episode. This isn't just a sequel to last week's. No, no, they're not related particularly, except for that they're obviously in the same sphere of politics and the upheaval of the last couple of years uh, uh, surrounding the French Revolution and the rise of uh, republicanism and revolutionaries. And this is where, and and in this time period you've got to focus on France. France is where is the epicentre of all these new ideas that are coming out. Uh, and so mm. today we'll be focusing on a murder. So a bit like uh, last week where we just focused on one murder, we're doing exactly the same thing this week, only this time uh, this is a murder in France rather than in Sweden, and it's by a woman rather than a group of disgruntled nobles. Mm. So it's going to be very interesting. Should be Should be fun. So uh the 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 origins of this of our of our episode today uh is set in revolutionary Paris and the man who is murdered was immortalized in a painting by someone called Jacques Louis David who is a very famous French painter and uh the man who was who is uh the man who gets murdered is a man called Jean-Paul Marat, who was a uh, one of a very important French revolutionary figure, but sort of on the propaganda side rather than on the sharp end of the guillotine. Okay, if you see so what I more, mean. more of the more of the talking guy rather than the stabbing guy. Yeah, exactly. Talky, talky, not stabby, stabby. And just he to, was just, uh, to, just to make it clear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, I don't particularly... They have nothing else in common, but he was a bit like the Joseph Goebbels of the French Revolution. In that, for Hitler's Nazi Germany, Goebbels was a very important part of it because he was the propaganda minister. So, see Marat. Forget about all the other awful things about Goebbels, but Marat, uh, Marat was writing and his pamphlets were spread all over France and what he wrote people were like oh my god this is it he was a bit of like a joe rogan of his day maybe <laughs> great yeah 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 I suppose, that's, I suppose that's kind of a similar um comparison okay so he's just kind of he's 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 getting the word out and he's the he's sort of telling the story as it's happening I suppose yeah exactly and he's very much um very much a radical because that's because that's really interesting because actually because last week we were talking about how the assassins were inspired by what was going on in France. They could have been inspired by this guy's writings, really. The, um, Absolutely. the conspirators targeting Gustave III were inspired by everything that was going on in France. And if this guy's talking about it, writing about it, pushing out propaganda about it, about how great their revolution is going, there's a really high chance this is where they were getting their information from. 
Very possibly. Look, I mean, look he at really us being was... all linked up. That's so. Yes. I'm, very proud I'm loving of the segues. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> History does not happen in a bubble. Everything no. <laughs> is is linked. Um, so, to just very quickly, in terms of the French Revolution, uh, it all sort of kicks off in 1789. So we're now in 1793. You're four years in, and there are su- there's um, very much. It's not sort of revolutionaries against royalists anymore which it was at the beginning now it's splintered massively now you have so many offshoot groups who want different forms of republic because you've got to remember that we there hasn't been a republic in europe except for maybe i wouldn't call it a republic but the, the english version with oliver cromwell which is more of a very minor which yeah. We won't go to yeah if you forget about that mm. we haven't really had a proper republic since rome so that wow. is a long that long, long time since ago. rome yeah, I think so. Although, I guess I'm just trying to think now off the top of my head. I can't think of another republic. I'd love it if someone like writes in and yes, goes, Yes, if you, you dear listener, donut. knows <laughs> of, a, of another republic. Um, hopefully it's not an obvious one. And we're not being... That's I'm literally racking my brain now. But I'm really sure it hasn't been around for a very long time. And the, um, the actual motifs of the French Revolution and actually the American Revolution um, takes a lot of, uh, of, its, of its sort of character from ancient rome so you have lots of eagles such as obviously you think of the bald mm. eagle in america but you also yes. had eagles in in french in french artistry as well in this time they're kind of seen and as a symbol of freedom symbol of of um although it's power. strange that yeah that they're stealing it from um imperial rome oh, i guess it could be republic rome they're technically taking it from so they kind of see it as as a as a show of force against corrupt kings and nobles and Anyone who, yeah. you know, people who want to go against the will of the people, I guess. Yes. And actually, quite interestingly, just how the Roman Republic was doomed to fail in terms of it would become an empire run by a dictator, yes. <laughs> the same thing happens in Fre- in French Revolution because, uh, of course, you have, you have the revolutionary period, then they start to make power. They have, obviously, um, halls of assemblies, for everyone to vote and democracy's sort of sort of getting there um and then they they moved from that system to what was called the directory which was uh i think seven members who were elected but they were sort of like consuls of rome so they were lots of power concentrated in seven individuals and then in all of that chaos comes one mr napoleon bonaparte who then (laughs) crowns himself emperor i think in oh it's 1802 1798 can't remember but the point is the trajectory is exactly the same actually it's quite it's quite a telling thing because that is a very common trajectory for most i guess it's proper democracies are really hard to set up and they're very difficult to maintain and to establish a sort of strong social order or anything like that because it's just there's just too many people deciding and you need it it's it, it it's remarkable that we live in a world now which is a huge amount of democracies although how democratic they are is up for debate but at least it's a lot closer than it used to be and actually it's throughout history as these times of when you know the will of the people is listened to and you build a republic and it just gets completely taken over by uh, a dictator by someone who yeah can, who can who can take over power which is actually which is exactly what happened in the last episode although you know in kind of a good way but in, yeah. in a lot of other ways it's it doesn't end as well no absolutely and i think this is the as you say it's a common trajectory because people want when the chaos reigns people w- look to the strong men with the swords or the rifles to sort of or the cannons stability apart yeah exactly uh, because of course he was an artillery officer very good patrick that's what you meant wasn't it? thank you yes yes thank you well <laughs> I, I mean i didn't i didn't know that much i just knew he liked cannons that's, that's oh, nice. okay. <laughs> okay so in this time you're 1793 to 1794 it was the worst period of the French Revolution in terms of um, dictatorial state and and murder, or sorry, judicial murder. Uh, at least 40,000 people were guillotined, which is oh ridiculous. God. That is and so many. 40,000 people guillotined. Was that just like any, any level of execution, it would be a guillotine at that time? It's not like guillotines were reserved to the high tier. It was you did anything oh, no. wrong because that was the guillotine. whole point the guillotine was meant to be egalite you know everyone <laughs> got killed the same way so is that where you, that comes from what guillotine do you mean come... no 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 no, no guillotine no, no, doesn't no, come from the word egalite oh that would be amazing <laughs> no, no 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 it comes from monsieur guillotine who uh invented oh, okay. his uh he invented it because he wanted it to be fair he wanted it to be 
you know, a quick, painless death, which apparently mm. it is. Can't really ask anyone because, funnily enough, no one survives the guillotine. But uh, it was cleaner. And he made it in Bordeaux. And then he, I'm pretty sure he killed himself because he absolutely hated the fact that he'd made something which was had such, he killed so many people. It's a bit, it's a bit like the, um, the, the guy who created Dynamite, who was someone Nobel. And he was the guy who then created the Nobel the Nobel Prizes because he was so ashamed of himself for inventing dynamite because it just got used to kill people. Like he invented oh, really? it. Yeah, I think I'm fairly sure this is right, but I think he invented it as a sort of, you know, a tool. So they use it in mining and they use it to clear debris and stuff like that. But because it started being used in warfare, he was very ashamed of himself. If this is wrong, I, I might check this afterwards and cut this out if I'm wrong. But I'm fairly no, sure no, no. he is then he then creates the Nobel Peace Prize and the Nobel Science Prizes um as a kind of to make himself feel better because he's so guilt-ridden. And I guess it's oh a similar God. thing. It's when you create the... It's, I mean, same thing happened with um, uh, Robert Oppenheimer and the, the Manhattan yes, Project group. The Manhattan they Project. were all very... Yeah. You know, they were they were so gung-ho about winning the war. And actually, they only, it was only towards the end they really realised what they had built. And that actually, you know, there's that, that guilt when you, when you... When you build a weapon, if you're just fighting a war, you can feel honest about it. When you build a weapon... You don't have control over how it gets used and who's going to use it. And I guess yeah. the same thing happened to Monsieur Guillotine. Exactly. Was, I, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a huge success. I mean, the Guillotine is. Yeah. I mean, it, and you know, the that? last. I, I think the very say, last yeah. person uh, to be guillotined was in 1972. Yeah, that's or something ridiculous in France. Unbelievable. I guess it is kind of seen. I mean, not nowadays, but back then it could have been seen as a sort of enlightened way of executing people. You know, it's hanging or a headsman is very Middle Ages and medieval. And uh, also and, very inaccurate and yes, very painful. Yeah, yeah. And hanging as well. The... You could, if the, if your neck doesn't break, you stay there slowly, slowly being strangled. Yeah, it's not, it's not very pleasant. Whereas a nice clean chop of a guillotine it just it just works. at least it'd be over having said that i mean if there was an afterlife and you and you left the world with the body Without that you were intact with you yeah you'd be like because well, that's, uh, that's a big thing in lots of sort of ancient civilizations you know i know egypt has a big thing you know you want i mean they take their organs out but having the body intact is very important and i think it's true for a lot of much well, more ancient civilizations no no not even that ancient medieval christianity if you committed suicide um, you first weren't buried in consecrated ground. You had to be buried at a crossroads, which is meant to be so that you would never rest. And you get stepped and on constantly, you had to be, you. Yeah, and you, I'm pretty sure they decapitate you as well. They decapitate mm. the corpse. Um, you need so your head really, to get into heaven. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. But yeah, something to me. Anyway, back to this. So um, in this year, one in every 50 French citizens was arrested. One, one in every 50. In every 50. Yeah, that's how bad it got. Yeah, that's so really intense. tough time. Um, and the fight was between, if you like, the moderates and the radicals. And the moderates were known as the Girondines, and the okay. radicals were the Jacobins. So that's right. quite important to remember. Okay. Now, the man who was killed, Jean-Paul Marat, uh, was a radical. And the thing is, at this point, pamphleteering, as it was called, was kind of like the uh, social media of its day. So. Yes. Uh, we had the printing press long before, so over a hundred years they'd had the printing press, and everyone it was very cheap to 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 make copies of of works. So it so was it's, yeah, it, invented long ago enough where it's, and it's, and it's yeah people try, people we can sort of trust it, get used to it. It's not it's not this new thing that people are getting used to. It's, I assume the literacy rate is at least higher than it had been any point in history. Yeah. it's reasonable. It's okay, but also what what would happen is it'd be read out in squares. And then people who couldn't read would get someone to read it for them. Mm. So it's, mm. it was it, people understood what was happening. Um, but Marat was uh, a bit of an interesting man because he uh, was not popular with the radical government at all. So he right. was, and he was how to put it. He, imagine him like a, he's a journalist, and he was short. And I said journalist like a, a sort of bad word there, but he <laughs> he had like he had a skin condition yeah, okay. which left his face pockmarked. We think it might have been smallpox or something. So he oh, was okay. constantly sweating. He was short, gremlin-looking. Like I'm honestly not taking the piss. Distrustful. I've seen photo- Pe- people don't trust people who look a bit ugly back then. Yeah. So it's, yeah and no, I, I was about to say I've seen photographs. I haven't seen photographs of him, but I saw <laughs> I've seen paintings of him, and he's not a very good-looking man. Right, but in death, he 
he actually looks quite pristine. And we'll get to uh, the death of Murat as in like the actual painting at the end of this. But uh, he was, as I say, a radical. And the Girondines, who were the moderates, were essentially, uh, they didn't want a government to go too far they didn't uh, one thing that the Girondines and the Jacobins were fighting over was whether or not to kill the king because at this point the king had been arrested and been under house arrest since November 1792 which I actually mentioned last week yeah and and so they're still umming and ahhing about what to do with him and the Girondines are saying for god's sake we need to keep him because we still need someone as a figurehead to, mm. to run the country otherwise every other monarchy around us is just going to invade which actually uh, was right i see so they're, they're worried about these other the neighboring um, monarchies being worried okay we can't let this uh, republic survive without a king because then it indicates that you know you know especially with you know america has just started across the seas you know if they start doing well if france starts doing well without without a without a king who knows what's going to happen to the rest of us Exactly, exactly. And actually, this is exactly what happens. So what happens is they have a, uh, they have, well, literally, the, the, they kill the king, they execute him. And then I think it's uh, the Span- the Austrian Empire, the Russian Empire, the Prussians, and the British Empire all go, right, you're fucked. <laughs> because <laughs> a bit like how the Americans with Vietnam were worried about the communist domino effect where if one country goes red then they're all going to go red this oh, is wow. exactly the same thing they didn't so want the, anti-monarchists not, in there they're not yeah they're not fighting a this is early stages of not fighting a, a state but fighting an idea a, a concept of of society that they don't want and it, rather than it being yeah communism as we see um, in more modern times it's the idea of republicanism Wow, that's so cool. Yeah. So it's just their their fear of this will be spreading throughout the country. It's so, it really shows that how globalized the world had become by this point, and actually these ideas will spread across um, across boundaries and across territories, and will go into it could spread anywhere and could really affect anyone. And they're so terrified of that. And I guess that's part of the reason, um, partly caused by uh, the introduction of the printing press and uh, wider spread literacy, and people are just more just... involved. Yeah. Yeah, and also there's so much, um, as I say, equality, egalité. Like you get so many different people uh, now allowed to have ideas when before you didn't. You know, you're going yeah. from a feudal age where you were just working or you were ruling to now lots of grey area. Yeah. Anyway, so it was yeah. a very interesting time to be alive, but I personally wouldn't want really to be anywhere near Paris in 1793. Now, Marat was doing pretty well for himself. He had enough money coming in because he was so popular that he could um, influence a lot of government decisions. Now, the Jacobins were in power at the time, and he was pushing them and pushing them to be more and more radical. And actually, he even was pissing them off. So they were, he wasn't popular even with the radicals. And he knew it, and he didn't care. He did not give a damn. He just wants to get his policies through. So so, So he's more, he's too radical for the radicals. Yes, because. It's always the way. It's a bit like, you know, Alex Jones, that that conspiracy theorist in America. Imagine if Alex Jones, he always like says, oh, no, 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 the government's doing this wrong, doing that wrong. Put Alex Jones in power for a month and see Mm. how he will probably buckle under the pressure. So Marat's the same. Marat's asking a radical government to be even more radical without having to have any problem with the responsibility because he hasn't got any. He just writes. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's so a bit he like, would brag. We have it here. It's, it's a bit like sort of UKIP party and stuff like that. You know, the outsiders can be a lot more extreme because they're not held up to. They don't have to keep their promises because they can't do anything. There's no scrutiny. There's no yeah. scrutiny at all. They can kind of say what they want, and even if they get a bit in trouble, it won't really matter to them. Whereas, so so the so the the Jacobins and the and the Girondins are they in power? Are they kind of in? They are sort of. Well, they in were control. sort of. The Girondins are actually in power at the at the beginning of our story, but their government falls just before the end of our story. So the Girondins have been trying right. to hold the Jacobins off, saying, "No, no, no, we're not going to execute the king." Then the Jacobins take power, and hey presto, the king has his. So head they are. They're like two rival political parties, and they're all kind of within power. But like the, political the Girondins, the Girondins are the, are the are the dominant party at that point. Only until just. The end. Yeah. Yeah. Only just. And uh, the, the thing about Marat is, the, on top of having no scrutiny, he would brag a lot about how, oh, if you uh, get me on the wrong side, I can have you executed by the day, the next day tomorrow with a magistrate's signature. 
So wow. he was like, yeah, he was very full <laughs> of himself. Yes, and the thing is, though, he I think he was quite bitter, as a lot of them would have been, by having lived in such an absolute monarchy and having the nobility be so crushing. Hmm. And he was from nothing, uh, Marat, uh, that he was now getting revenge, like a lot of Jacobins were. I see. So anyway, that's so that's let's leave Marat where he is. Marat eventually will be murdered. Now okay. we should go to the person who murdered him. So okay. Charlotte Corday is her name. And she was born on the 27th of July, 1768, in a little hamlet in Normandy in northern France. And her full name was Marie-Anne Charlotte de Corday d'Armont. Now, that's right. quite a posh French name. It sounds that's like, yeah. That's not, you know... It could, that's quite a posh name anywhere, has... I'd say. I think anywhere, you'd, if you've got that many names in your name, I think you're pretty posh. Yeah, exactly. And this is the thing. So she, her family were actually uh, from the minor gentry. So the very lowest of the low on the sort of ladder of nobility, which okay. meant that when the revolution began and the top cream, if you like, of the, mm. the, you know, the elite nobility having their heads chopped off, the minor gentry were a bit like, no, 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 no. We've been trodden down by these guys as well. So we're on your side. You know, vive la right, revolution. Right. They, they can kind of play both sides in essence because they're kind of, they're, you know, they're not so high up to be targeted, but they're, and they're lower down enough they can go. They wouldn't yeah, be living and also, in such absolute um, riches and massive palaces that they can kind of maybe be a they, bit treated a bit better. And also they're under the radar because all those yes. big fish ahead of them are the ones who all the revolutionaries want to take out first. But... As the government is becoming more and more radical, they start wanting to wipe out these smaller gentry as well. They kind of want so, to wipe out the entire gentry class, not just yeah, they, the, the heads. This is uh, We can't talk about communism because communism hasn't been invented yet, but this is a very much a proto-communist movement in mm. terms of they had quite a lot of similar things. Or oh, Marxism might be a better the word. The working man, the bourgeoisie communism. rising up and kicking out and all, just, the, um, yeah. all the nobles. Yeah. Um, so her and actually interestingly enough her parents were first cousins and again that's a very notable thing for the nobility to do <laughs> keep it in the family that's keep not a thing that the, that the peasant class that the lower classes do because it's not as important for them to keep family lines and family blood trees and stuff like that exactly yeah, yeah. so she was born in 1768 so in the height of the the french monarchy you know no big deal at the time like she would have led a comfortable life she she had she would have had a tutor and things were probably pretty pretty easy going for her compared to like you know the peasant class below her mm -hmm. um so in her early life she was when she was only six or seven her mother and her older sister were were sort of killed died of an illness and then her father was so grief-stricken that he sent her away to an abbey to be raised by nuns when she was so six or six or seven six six or seven yeah so wow. suddenly she loses her mother her older sister so she's the baby of the family and her mm. father probably didn't know what to do with the the youngest and just basically sent her to be raised by nuns. Now, this was actually really, 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 really good for her because Charlotte was there. She was taught... Uh, she, she seemed to be in quite a sort of forward-thinking nunnery considering she would have arrived there in the mid-1770s in, in absolute monarchy France. She was taught to read Plutarch and Voltaire, which are both wow. quite radical... Not radical, yeah. but... Um, Radical for the time to be uh, these thinkers for, for a nunnery to be giving them to read. That's quite impressive. Yeah, and also because she was in a nunnery, it meant that uh, when there was an uprising against the gentry, she was nowhere near it because she was with the nuns, and they wouldn't. So target she nuns, was just, shielded. Know. Yeah, oh, and once wow. you joined a nunnery, you're there for life most of the time. Yeah. So anyway, um, now she spent most of her life in there. She she went in at six or seven, and she didn't leave until 1791, when she was about 22, 23. Yeah. So she spent most of her life in a very sheltered, cloistered environment. She didn't actually ever take her vows, so she wasn't a nun, but she was just a part of the community. Nuns. Yeah, and okay. part of the community, so a lay a lay person within the community. Um, and this is also another thing. So she eventually becomes, she's sort of um, convinced to become a Girondine, so one of the moderate revolutionaries, mm. right? And so in 1791, it's a pretty big year for for uh, 
for Charlotte Corday because she then leaves the nunnery and moves in with her first cousin, Madame Le Custelier de Bretteville Gauville. So again, well a done. name like that. Thank you. I thought <laughs> I had to practice that a few times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she was um, she was also about the same age as 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 Charlotte, and she was living okay. in Caen, which is just up the road from the nunnery. It's like a pretty large. It's like a large city, but back then it was a lot smaller. It still had its medieval walls, and it was it was a place of any city in 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 France at this point was where the the revolution was brewing more than in the sort of field. Yes, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. And um, so Charlotte uh, had moved in with her cousin, and her cut. Co- they were very very close, and her cousin was a a massive Girondin. So ah, see. she is the is the root cause, not the root cause, the person who introduces her to this ideology. This ideology. It's it reminds me a bit of like you know she's she's grown up in a nunnery. It's almost like you grow up in a small town and then you go to university. You go to a big city. You see some other mates <laughs> yeah. of yours who've been there before. You know your first cousin, and then you're like you become a bit more radicalized. You know you get getting some new liberal ideas. It's it's very like that, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, so this, she moves in with her cousin in 1791, and 1791, the 1790s, the early 1790s, when, as I said, the French Revolution is getting more and more bloody, and so there's some, suddenly you got the Girondins on one side and the Jacobins on the other, mm. and the Girondins are in power, but they're being slowly eroded by Marat. So Marat's work, um, the victim of our story, his work was so compelling that it was starting to make the masses and the public see the light, the Jacobin light, and te- wanting them to tear down the Girondin government. So it was having a real effect on the people. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow. Now, we don't know quite how how Charlotte Corday came to this idea. The chances are she was contacted by Girondins in the city of Caen, uh, and, or maybe she, she knew them, maybe they were friends of hers or of her cousins. But she comes up with a plan to basically get rid of Marat in order to save the Girondin government. Uh, and the last straw seems to have been that uh, the Girondin cause, the which was being majorly hampered by the work of Marat, meant that the government fell on the 2nd of June, 1793. So wow. the thing that she, her, her sort of nightmare scenario in her mind has happened. So then the Jacobins take power on the 2nd of June. Okay, so she sees this so as D-Day, this is, like, this, is, this is really bad. This is, this is Everything's gone tits up. Everything's yeah. falling apart. And it's all, so, and it's largely this guy's fault, who is becoming, I guess, not really the face, but, you know, within, you can see mouthpiece. him as, you know, if you really look at it, yeah, it's the mouthpiece. It's the, the he's the real, he's the one radicalizing people. Um, mm. Do they take over democratically? Are they voted in? Is it is is that what they're worried about in actually Marat's uh, his ability to sway no. people, or is it just a, more of a coup? It's a... it's mob rule. It's mob rule. There isn't a coup because there isn't. I mean, there is a as I said, Which, the, the Girondins have a I government, mean, but I mean, mob rule. There is an element of that that is democratic. If you've got a bigger mob than the other mob. Which is a directly, and you know, you're not enlisting soldiers, you're not hiring them. They're joining your cause because they've been convinced, and if they're being convinced by Marat, so there is an element of democracy, a slightly horrific, yeah, uh, sort of dark but mirror. But it's of a radical. Democracy. Yeah, that's the thing, and it is so radical that these Jacobins, at their worst, would start executing themselves, as in not not suicidally. I mean, I yeah, mean, yeah. that that people within their ranks, if they weren't radical enough, they'd they'd be sent to the guillotine. And so it it seems like a sort of hellish scenario. And you've got mm. Marat, who is gaining power, and Charlotte Corday's faction are losing power. So they're literally two sides of the of the divide, you know? Yeah. And so uh, the day of the murder happens six weeks after the fall of the Girondin cause. So Charlotte wow, Corday so she gets a move is on. pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, she does. So this has clearly been in the planning, I think, uh, for quite some time. Now, Charlotte Corday... Must have travelled down to Paris from Caen, which is in the north, and she uh, she turns up at Marat and his wife's house in Paris. Now, the thing, the other thing to know about Marat, as I said earlier, is he suffered from skin diseases, and we believe that he had some sort of eczema, and uh, but a severe case. So he he was 
probably quite gross to look at. No offense to him. I mean, I shouldn't say that, but like yeah. quite a revolting, quite um, ghastly skin quite condition that he had. Yeah, yeah. And so his doctors were telling him that he had to bathe every day. So he was, and that sounds quite nice, really, when you think about it. But actually, what he was bathing in was a sort of porridge. Oh. So it had oats, uh, oats and water and milk were the three main <laughs> main elements of what Ooh. he would bathe in. But it would also have um, various salts and minerals. So mm. it was like, oh, it's like a spa sort of treatment. Like, it's like a spa treatment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he does. Also sound, have I mean, his... It sounds like it would be quite good for your skin, to be honest. I don't know. But... Yeah. But, you know, uh, I think they even included mercury and things. So it's, you know, things that would <laughs> okay, absolutely not, best, not yeah. help you. But he also had to wrap his head in a sort of turban. So he looked quite weird, you know. And you can see this in John, uh, sorry, in David's, in Jacques Louis David's uh, portrayal of his death. He, mm-hmm. he does look very strange, uh, almost feminine, I think. Like, uh, but anyway, so he uh, is in the bath. His hair done up in a towel or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, it does. It does. So he's in the bath, taking his daily bath, and he's writing in the bath, as you do, uh, when his wife answers the front door to a young woman claiming to have vital information about fleeing Girondin members of the fallen government to Normandy. Because, of course, she would have had a Norman accent. Ah, okay. A Norman accent. So it fits, yeah. It fits, and and Marat was bloodthirsty. You can say what you like about him, but he really wanted to catch and kill every bloody Girondin so she, he could So find. she picked the perfect cover story to really draw him out or really yeah. get, allow her to get close. Exactly. This is happening on the 13th of July, 1793, by the way. Um, and so she, that this is her way in. That's sort of what she wants to do. So uh, she knocks on the door, and the wife doesn't trust her doesn't think this is right for some reason she smells a rat and uh, but despite his wife's protest wife. because they seem to be they seem to be having a bit of a a problem at the door if you like uh, mm. and marat can hear it because he's upstairs in the bath and he then shouts down to his wife and insists that charlotte corday should be given an audience by him okay and so he actually gives permission for his wife to relent and let this man this woman in and i think that because he, he probably wasn't that scared of her because she was a young woman, might have mm-hmm. played quite a large role in it. A bit like the Vichy yes. Kanya. You don't necessarily, as a pig-headed male, mm. think of women as deadly. You know, He may have been also overly confident, which actually is very similar to what we were talking about with the Vichy Kanya. But, you know, his his party or his preferred party is just taking power. He might be feeling, you know, this is, we're in power now. I'm protected. Um, I no yeah. longer, I'm not as in much danger as I was in before. Um, and now this woman's come along saying i can hunt down and then you're right probably a bit of bloodlust to find and hunt down the members of the Girardines. yeah now can you imagine being charlotte corday she's 25 at this point and she's walked she walks into paris probably getting a coach there from from con and Mm -hmm. uh so she's on her way to commit murder and it is pre premeditated because she goes to a shop on her way to the house and buys a five-inch kitchen knife. Wow. So she buys it that day, a brand new knife from a blacksmith. Mm. So it would have been finely honed, perfect for <laughs> what she's trying to do. Brand do you new, know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's not blunt. She's on. No. She's done it on purpose. So and she's hiding it in her corset, which is very similar to how the Sakari used to hide the knife. This it's very is, interesting. We're pulling, how we're pulling everything they, from our previous episodes. Yeah, that's really, I, uh, that's really impressive. Yeah, I mean, I guess a corset. So, you know, that's. <laughs> that, that's like ready-made to conceal things it's so tight and so bound up with so many layers you know you, you if you pat them down you wouldn't feel anything because there's too much under there yeah exactly so she comes upstairs and he's actually composing a letter in the bath when when corday walks in now she walks into quite a cramped room it's not very big and uh he's got a sort of stool next to the bath and uh so he can write on it he's got sort of um pen and, and yeah, ink yeah a quill and so he's like and he he ushers her in and he says um you know hello what do you know please sit down so he invites her in properly and and then says right uh, he put down the letter and listens to what corday is claiming he then is convinced enough to get out a fresh sheet of paper and begins to write down a list of the names that corday is is telling him about so she's, and so the she's, thing is she's she's going through she's properly 
running through her part, essentially. She's playing the part properly and giving yeah. them names. And those names, Marat will have already known the names, but to know that they where they fled to is very interesting because you've got to think, Charlotte Corday, now this is speculation, this is six weeks after the government has fallen. So they if they probably were fleeing to Caen, they were getting yeah, out she, of Paris. And I suppose from so she might have even met these. It doesn't really matter if she's giving him real information in, because no. she knows what's about to happen. Yeah, I can't believe how calm she is, to be honest. Uh, uh, mm. Well, we don't know how calm she was, but as you'll see, it, it, it's pretty calm. So she's he's writing down this na- all these names of these Girondin government officials. And Corday later claimed at her trial that he then said, soon I shall have them all guillotined in Paris. So that this is the kind of bloodlust we're talking about. So, um, he's, so he said only... that, so it's, it's almost like a final confirmation that this guy is one who needs to die because you know she's listing names of presumably her friends and her allies and he's going yes i will kill them all it's yes sort of and like also a final her check. her motive for killing him is if i kill marat the propaganda will stop and the girondin movement will survive that's her th- theory mm-hmm. it doesn't work but anyway so sure. then as he's writing uh corday rises from the chair that she's been offered draws out the five-inch kitchen knife from her corset, which she'd bought just that day, and plunged it into Marat's chest. So it's hardly like... It's a very... If you think about it, she's right in his face mm. and stabbing downwards because he's in the bath. Yeah. So I know she's short, but she, you know, she's stabbing straight at the heart, which is a very... Oof. It's a very personal way of killing someone. I mean, yes. I'm not saying there's an easy way, but it's only one thrust. There's not other cuts... She goes oh, okay. straight for the heart. Once into and the we're chest. pretty sure she's not used to using this knife. Obviously, she just bought it, but using knives in general. Because when she stabs in, you're meant to stab in and twist. Otherwise, the body will um, basically grip the knife. So we think uh. that the knife got stuck. Maybe Ooh. on a rib or something like that. I know, Grizzly. Jammed in there, but, yeah. um So she couldn't get it out again. So then... Uh, the wife is downstairs, uh, Marat's wife, and apparently his last, the suffering would have lasted only a few seconds, but Marat was able to just about utter the words, aidez-moi ma chère amie, which means help me, my beloved, wow. to his wife, Simone, and then he dies. Wow, so he's able to call out for help in that last yes. moment. Yes. Now, what do you think you do if you're Charlotte Corday? You've just murdered a man, you're 25 years old, and you're a Girondin in the middle of Jacobin Paris. I mean, I feel. I mean, you need to. I need to run, but surely you need to get the knife as well. But you can't get it out of his chest. So, well, it's before the days of. Uh, I know, but you, you did just buy a knife just down the street from a blacksmith. So, oh, you I think? Mean, I, I, <laughs> you're sorry, so I'm, frugal, Patrick. Well, no, 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 no. I don't mean to save money. I <laughs> That's mean a quality knife. <laughs> I mean basing. Ba- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. She should make sure she gets the knife back. She spent a lot of money on that knife, and you know, it's rough, rough times. No, I was more thinking back to uh, our last episode where um, the assassin and Karlstrom was caught because he left his gun, and they were able to trace his gun back to him. Oh, I She's see. She's just bought a knife, and if they take the knives to the local blacksmiths, that one of them will say, "Oh yeah, I just I sold that knife, you know, this morning to this random girl." I mean, yeah. although hard to really prove it wasn't her, given that the his wife is probably about to come running up the stairs and seeing. Him. So she's not she's not getting away with this, really. No, 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 no. Well, this is the thing. So she doesn't flee. She doesn't she flee stays, at all. She sits down and waits wow. for the authorities. Ooh, power move. Love it. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's going to go well. So, well, this is the thing. So I think she sees herself as a martyr to the cause. Okay, but okay. I, ironically, because of the painting that's subsequently done by um, the friend of Marat's, uh, Jacques-Louis David, uh, it actually works the other way. So she actually turns Marat into this, who was actually past his sell-by date anyway. As I said, the Jacobin government were really pissed off with him and they wanted him gone, really. Right, and this is the he was perfect too far. Outing. Yeah, so now they used him as like a poster boy. So his death becomes uh, a symbol of the Jacobin movement. And they this painting that Jacques-Louis David made was redone again and again and again. They reproduced it and put it on their flyers and they had it as a banner. Oh, so it's, it's actually... Like in death, he becomes his own propaganda. That's cool. Yeah. 
Exactly. That's amazing. Wow. So yeah, that's that's really. And then from from the Jackman's point of view, that's perfect because then he's he's exactly he's he's we stop having him going a bit too far. They get rid of someone they don't need, but they don't have yeah. to do it themselves, and they get to use his death in a, in a more useful way than his he was in life. Uh, he'd become in life because he was no yes. longer being useful to them and going too far. Wow. That's whereas yeah, wow. whereas like uh, <laughs> Charlotte Corday was was just remembered really as a murderer. You know, she yeah, wasn't. Rem- yeah, people remember yeah. the death of Marat because of the painting. No one remembers who bloody killed him. But what was interesting is, I think she saw the trial as her big moment. But ironically, uh, she needed a Marat, but for the Girondins to get yes. that message out. But she didn't have that. So what happens is they arrest her on the spot, and she says she did. She did it. She doesn't deny it. Completely and she's, um, guilty. Yeah. She's yeah. She's brought up in court the following day. And this is a Jacobin magistrate's court, so it's hardly going to be very fair on her. But she asked, um, she asked uh, for a certain person, an old acquaintance known as Gustave Le Dulcet or Dulce, uh, to represent her, and she sent a letter off to him. But the the Jacobins didn't want him to talk because he was a bit of a mouthpiece for the Girondins, so they delayed the letter so that he couldn't represent her, oh, and wow. instead. She was represented by somebody else who didn't have the same, um, you know, gravitas and and, yeah, yeah, ability to. Wow! Oh, that's so. So they. So they. So yeah, she's not. She's not thought about this a huge amount. She's kind of assuming that the Jackimans will play fair and will go. Okay, well, you can have your own lawyer. You can have your own version of Marat to fight your case. When actually they have no intention of yeah. doing that. They just want they to... want to control the whole dissemination and what how it's going to be perceived. Now, what's interesting is the focus of the questioning in court was actually just to establish whether she was part of a wider Girondist uh, conspiracy. and But she uh... remained constant in insisting that uh, she said, I alone conceived the plan and executed it. Now yes, they want to use this as a as a way of targeting Girondins because that's that, that they don't really care about executing her. They care about going after the people who they've already unseated. But you know, finding well, yes, but also I think that I well, you can put it that way. But I actually think it's more paranoia. I think that they're worried that uh, mm. they'll be able to strike Marat in his bath. Who else is like nearby? Like are the Girondins planning a, another uprising? Because why not? They've only just oh, okay. been in power six weeks. So I think it's that. Now, when she was talking about Marat in her trial, she she called him, she she referred to him as a hoarder, which I think is a bit weird, and a mm. monster who was respected only in Paris. Okay, so she's sort of also, saying, yeah, the rest of the country hates this person. Yeah, yeah, and also um, the plunging of the knife and, and it sticking. Uh, she credited it. Uh, the the kill as uh, luck because she hadn't done any practice had any practice so right. this was she, a, a bit of a murder <laughs> well no but even stabbing into a pillow or something I don't know mm-hmm. I don't know what you'd stab into but like the point is that this is a this was just a she's saying she's a lone wolf maybe she was I don't particularly agree with that I don't think I think it was part of maybe a small group and she was mm-hmm. just defense she was protecting the identities of uh, other. Girondines. Yeah. I don't know, um, but anyway. So that yes. Yeah, so that is the the murder, if you like. What's interesting is that this this whole narrative can be seen within artwork. So, as I said, Jacques Louis David, very very famous uh, revolutionary painter, painted the death of Jean Paul Marat, which you can see. Uh, I think it's in the National Gallery, or it might be in the Louvre, but it's online, and uh, we'll put it on our mm-hmm. Instagram so you can see it. But interesting. So that and he's sort of in this sort of divine. Um, he sort of looks like a martyr, so he's at yeah. peace. There's no skin blemishes whatsoever, except for the one stab wound uh, yeah, on his chest. Great. So he's meant to look divine, and he's holding um, the list of names which uh, Charlotte Corday yeah. gave him. And actually, one of the names on there is Charlotte Corday. So maybe oh, she really? gave her own name as a sort of yeah. But she obviously must have given a pseudonym when she. When she all, came, all, all that's a that's a liberty the painter took just to. Oh, absolutely. Know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, the paintings go on. So um, we're in the middle of a sort of realism, uh, a realist uh, movement. So Jacques uh, Louis David had painted Marat as he was found, down to the very um, blanket that was over the bath was green. It's like a green rug, and you can see it. Mm. It's like a snapshot painting, which I love. From a historian's perspective, it's bloody brilliant. Yeah, because you can see everything. Now, obviously, there's artistic license as well. Uh, but another painting 
was done of Corday's because after Corday's sentenced to death, the very next day she is she is put to death. Oh no, four days afterwards, four days after Marat is killed, she gets executed in uh, the Place de Greve, which is a, a very much a a place where lots of uh, executions happened in in Paris. Mm-hmm. And she was wearing a red overblouse, which was the sign of a traitor. So it was like a red. If you're wearing red, you are a traitor to right, okay. cause. Uh, and she was she, her final uh, moments. What she was actually painted. She she was given permission. This is so French. She was given permission to select the artist <laughs> to paint her last moments. Cool. So their version of a final meal. You get a final painting. Yeah, a final painting. So um, so a, a man called who was a National Guard officer actually called Jean Jacques Hauer. It's H A U E R Hauer. Sounds a bit mm. German, but he was he paints her. There's a portrait of her which you can look up online, and we'll put it in the Instagram post. And she looks quite serene and and calm, which I'm sure she probably wasn't. Mm. Uh, but my favourite painting of all was actually done uh, a bit later by a man named Arturo Michelena uh, in 1889, and he paints. And again, we'll put this on um, her walking towards the scaffolding through a door, and she's surrounded by. French revolutionary, you know, Jacobins, and also just to the right, um, the person who's painting her final portrait. So it's like a, a painting within a painting, painting of, a, a painting. of of someone who'd murdered someone who was in a painting. <laughs> There's oh, like painting so inception going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so I yeah. quite like the way that that that, that sort of um, it neatly wraps that up. That art is all the way through, and it's imitating life, or is mm. life imitating art? So yeah, that is our story for this week. I hope you guys enjoyed Great. it we are now going to move swiftly on to the closer look which i think this week we'll start with you patrick if you want to take it away yes so we decided because we liked talking about the um the painting um of marat and the other ones in the main body we thought we'd do a bit of digging and see if there were any other cool paintings of assassinations or similar um, throughout history. So I have found a couple of paintings of St. Peter the Martyr, who is a Ooh. 13th century Dominican friar in Italy. Um, although at the time he was just, I guess, Peter the, the friar. He wasn't a saint yet. Um, and he was a preacher and he was quite a, he's quite a, a charismatic preacher. Um, and he mainly okay. preached against the Cathars, which are a strange sort of heretical sect of Christianity who actually like rewrote some of the biblical story, especially the early parts. And they were very, um, very critical of the Catholic Church, which obviously at that time um, reigned supreme in Italy and most of the world. Yes. And actually he was so okay. successful as a preacher um, that Pope Gregory IX appointed him Inquisitor General for Northern Italy, which is basically the guy in charge of rooting out heretics. Uh, Cathars oh, being God. probably one of the main ones. So he was kind of put in charge of hunting, not really hunting down, but sort of overseeing, the, you know, the religious figurehead uh, head of at the top of all these inquisitors searching out for um, heretics. So yeah. he was, while he was very popular with the Catholic Church, he was obviously very unpopular with the Cathars. And a group of Milanese Cathars decided he needs to go. We need to kill him. Oh, God. So... On the on April the sixth, twelve fifty two, two hired assassins followed Peter, who was also with one of his fellow friars named Dominic, along a road from Milan to Como. Um, I don't think I don't think it, the and the attack didn't happen too far out of Milan, so they didn't wait long. But obviously far out enough where you know they wouldn't get in trouble. Uh, yeah, Milan the town guard like aren't going to get involved or anything. Yeah, yeah, Milan's not like a a Cathar city. It's still the Catholic Church is still everywhere. They're just they're just the group that were within Milan. Um, sure. And they so they attack him. Peter is initially struck on the head with a cleaver, which is, and cleavers oh. tends to be the word. And we'll see the painting of it in a sec. It is like this thick blade, you know, or sort of. Um, it's a butcher's wide. blade. It's a proper yeah. butcher's blade, you know. So he gets struck in the head with that, but he doesn't die immediately um dominic i think is attacked as well but managed to escape and then while peter is on the floor he supposedly oh this is probably maybe made up by um the catholic preachers after him supposedly he dips his hand in his own blood and writes credo in diem which means i believe in god 
on the ground wow. as this kind of like final just statement, just kind of you know it's what you do as a religious person. <laughs> Can you imagine like, and oh no, I haven't got enough. I haven't got enough to to write. Oh it. No, 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 I've just wrote, I've just wrote dear, which doesn't mean God, it means something else. <laughs> yeah. um, but then Sorry. he's finally stabbed in the chest um, and left on the ground to die. Oof. So that's the story. Um, and there are quite a few paintings of St. Peter, but the one that we're going to take a look at, um, and listeners, you can see this in our Instagram page, um, is of the actual assassination. And it's by a man named Giovanni Bellini, and it was painted in 1507. And um, and it's quite an interesting painting because there's a lot going on here. And um, Bellini was quite a revered uh, painter at the time. And there's actually quite a lot of cool artistic elements to it that are that repeat in his work and this is considered one of his best pieces the sort of band of light that goes across um like in the other side of the trees is a very common trait in all his paintings and it's this kind of straight it it it, it works very well in a lot of landscape paintings a lot of action paintings because it kind of gives this this depth to it paintings depth. that wouldn't no- yeah. yeah yeah wouldn't normally exist in a lot of um a lot of paintings of the time what's also quite interesting sure. about it is peter is in is in the bottom left and actually you can see so you can see him being stabbed finally um and actually you can just see the cleaver sticking out of his head um, oh god yeah you can yeah yeah so you can see it. and it's quite unusual for him to be the so that's the mo- that's the main part of this painting and it's a strange thing to have it bottom left the, the middle of the painting is the, his friend dominic being attacked dominic yeah, yeah. Uh, which, which is quite an unusual painting style and that would sort of be um, repeated in a lot of the painters other also work. i'm just looking there the other people in the background are just looked like sort of lumberjacks and they're just getting about their day they don't seem to yeah. give a fuck yeah <laughs> yeah they are they are just woodsmen um who are just going about their day i mean yeah it's a bit it's, it's a bit strange they don't even seem to have turned around and looked have they they're just they're just no you know, i think maybe i'm a lumberjack and i'm okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah they don't well they probably don't want to get involved i mean the people attacking them are, are lightly armored they've got swords you know there's no there's no battle going on if they if they try i mean they've got i mean i'm so, i'm just axe. yeah it's, it's but, interesting um, to include them in in the painting that's all it's interesting yeah also yeah, marat like... and 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 uh is it dominic no, St. Peter, sorry. Uh, both look quite similar, like serene. The faces are very similar. Yes, I think this is definitely calm. written from the point of view of someone who's, who supports um, the Catholic Church. He's kind of dying in quite an elegant way. He's not coughing sort of up blood. He doesn't look deranged. He looks quite peaceful of the face. Um, in fact, there's no blood. There's no blood. There was, there's a small amount of blood coming off the uh, off the, off the cleaver, I think. There's, I think there's dripping blood. It's quite hard to oh, see. Yeah. But I think there's a little bit of dripping blood. Now... Because I mentioned the cleaver sticking out of his head. This actually becomes quite an interesting thing because there's a weird thing where every saint has its saintly attribute or it's kind of like it's identifying identifying symbol. Yeah, it's the way that you can determine who a saint is because, you know, painting skills couldn't exactly indicate what they looked like. And, you know, if they lived hundreds of years before, you wouldn't know what each saint looked like but if you give them their attribute which could be they're holding something or they're they're pictured with a lamb or they've got a certain yeah. style like, i think saint andrew is covered in arrows you always know it's an andrew yes he's covered in saint arrows. andrew is covered in arrows there's all sorts of ones um i assume saint patrick's probably fighting a snake or something like that or has a clover uh, yeah. something like that but um saint peter's attribute is the cleaver in the head which is a bit of a weird attribute Ooh. to have kind of similar to saint andrew with with arrows in his chest and i guess that's what they want to show the the story of this man is more about his death um which is a bit harsh yes. on him and so yeah so that is my assassination painting um for this week's closer look so will what have you got um this week for my closer look i i'm going to be looking at a painting um depicting a biblical story in uh, all about someone called judith actually in the book of judith which is kind of like from a source it's it's from a book called the book of judith which isn't really in the canon if you like of the bible <laughs> but it, it's like halfway between old testament and new testament so it's, it's like bonus meant- material yeah and like jerome mm. saint jerome who was like a scholar 
accepted the book but others didn't there's always the issue with uh, scripture but um <laughs> it's like it's like the marvel cinematic universe there's tv shows that they don't recognize that aren't canon you know they're not you know they're not considered part of the main the main storyline like, was it star wars uh, the clone wars series is that canon or has it been yeah out, no it's, you know? yeah they yeah all the star wars legend stuff that was that was taken out of canon yeah yeah wow yeah, yeah so these god it's just religious people are actually just a bunch of nerds really they're just Basically, a bunch yeah. of nerds who are really big fans of jesus essentially <laughs> anyway so this week's story for the closer look is about the story of judith now judith uh was living in a city in israel or somewhere in in, in judea um when babylonia the babylon people the babylonian people were encroaching onto their land and king nebuchadnezzar was the big baddie if you like and he comes a, a, you hear about him as a lot uh in different stories in the bible but in this instance he sends his best general a man called holophanes who was an assyrian general to wipe out judith city which was kind right. of being a dissident dissident force so then one morning judith wakes up she's a wealthy widow um, still very young. Her husband died. I don't think you ever find out how her husband dies, but she's she's really well off. I'm not sure what, what that has on the story. I don't know why that's important, but it, it comes up a lot. Sounds wealthy widow. I wonder yeah. what happened to that husband. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe she was the first, like an assassin. Maybe we're, that's it. We're, we're now reading into this a lot more. <laughs> Visha Kanya. <laughs> like, seriously. Yeah, yeah. It's about the same time period. It's about 300 BC, which is about the same yeah. time as the Visha Kanya, wasn't it? BCE, yeah. sorry, oh, BCE. Crazy. Yeah, we've blown this wide open. Clearly, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, we're, we're really going to start rooting against Judith, I think now. Um, but maybe, yeah, maybe that's a power move. You know, she's got an awful husband. She wants some of the fortune. She quietly Knocks gets rid of him, drinks some poisons. But um, yeah, really funny. Um, okay, so uh, Judith uh, is visited, I think, by an angel who says, "You know what you got to do." basically classic bible stuff yeah yeah so she then goes to the elders of the city who uh are sort of panicking they're like what do we do we can't defend ourselves blah, blah, blah. and she says um let me go out on my own and they are like what don't do that like you'll die that's not a good idea not a good tactic um but she says listen i've i've had a message from god and she, it sounds like i'm telling a joke it sounds like i'm telling a religious joke it's not a religious <laughs> it joke. does <laughs> listen guys i've had a message from god it's it sounds a bit um monty python it does uh so she gets this message and she says i'm going so they're like okay fine so she then leaves and goes down to the camp of the babylonian forces and because of her okay. beauty and she's she's uh wearing like her finest jewelry and her finest clothes uh, she gets. Uh, she asks to see the to see Holophanes, the Babylonian general, and Holophanes is stunned by her beauty and invites her into his tent along with lots of other people. They're not just on one on one at this point, um, and says, "Oh my God, you're amazing! Let's throw a feast." So then there's a big feast that is thrown, but sh but Judith won't touch any of it because she's a good holy woman. She doesn't want anything to do it, but she's basically honey trapping. God's yes. basically sent Judith as a honey trap to Holophanes. Um, but she's playing massively, like, not caring anything about Holophanes, being very, like, cold, keeping, what's it, what's it, treating me and keeping keen kind of tactic. Ah, smart. Um, eventually, this actually goes on for three days apparently this oh wow okay well, yeah she goes to it's not like a, a an orgy it's not like three-day orgy it's like a right, right. Oh, okay come back tomorrow we'll, we'll do it again kind of thing so this is all uh, happening building trust yeah exactly Breaking down his like barriers yeah and and also the guards get their barriers broken down as well oh, of course they're like, oh yeah. trusted yeah exactly so then um on the fateful day uh holophanes invites they're having their third day of debauchery and he i think judith says i'd like to speak to you alone so then holophanes orders all of his men absolutely everyone out of the tent so it's just him and judith and judith had an attendant as well um who was an old that she's called an old maid which is a bit mean probably an, a middle-aged woman who's like her sort right. of servant um but she's also told to get out so it's just Judith and Holophanes. Now Holophanes goes and gets a glass of wine for both of them to drink 
Doesn't this sound like Visha Kanya? It really does, actually. It is sounding a lot like Visha Kanya. God. But anyway, um, and she won't drink it because she says, no, I can't. It's it's against my religion. Um, Ah, Okay. But she, she has, I don't know quite how, but she's spiked the drink. Now, whether that was God's will, as in God's favor, or she's put something in his drink. Is that something God can do? He can just spike, I guess he can do anything. He can just spike drinks. Yeah, it's a bit well, weird does... to think of God spiking drinks. Yeah, but you know he does the opposite with St. Patrick. He um he um St. Patrick's given a poison chalice and uh God turns it to uh like he, he turns the wine to stone and then the drop of poison drops out of it so that then St. Patrick won't be poisoned. So this thing is oh. you know God's God's done this sort of thing before. Um, he's, he's he's worked in this area before. I'm sure yeah, he can do this. Libations, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> libations and beverages. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's he's got experience in beverages. He's, yeah. he's, he's worked in the drinks industry. <laughs> anyway, so Judith, uh, so then Holopides takes this long drink and basically passes out. He gets roofied, or, or I don't know if he's got roofied, but yeah. whatever happens, he is now knocked out. Um, and he's slumped on the bed where he's been trying to get Judith to join him for, you know, things which he shouldn't be asking of a widow. Um, and... Ah. Judith then strikes. So this is when assassin Judith comes out. Above the bed on a sort of mantelpiece is Holofernes' huge sword. Massive sword. Oh. No pun intended. And she mm. gets she she gets it off the, the lintel and with one sweep chops off Holofernes' head. That's like, such nice, like poetic justice. I love that using his own sword against him. Yeah, and he was trying to use his other sword against her. Oh, it just—it exactly. just all makes so much sense. Yeah, so th- that's what happens. The head falls off. Obviously, no one's seeing this because uh, it's in the private mm-hmm. chamber of the general in a tent. Um, so then um, Judith quickly gets her old—I almost said it there—her attendant to come in and <laughs> and pick up the head and put it in a basket, and then they because the guards have had their guard down um, walk straight past the guards and say oh yeah we're just going to go back to the city for a bit you know get a fresh change of clothes wow. whatever we'll with the in head it. in a basket yep and then they get back to the city and they brandish the head and they're like look 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 we killed well Judah's like look I killed I killed the general in in God's name of course um, mm-hmm. and puts it on a spike on the wall and then the Babylonian forces see their general's head up there and they're like Oh my god! And then they all turn and flee, and Judith saves the day. Wow, what an awesome! That is such a successful assassination. That is the, probably the most possibly the most successful assassination we've ever talked about, and probably <laughs> yeah. will ever talk about. I mean, it is a story, and who knows how much is true? But I, I'm going to blanketly assume it was all true. And Judith is an absolute badass who just <laughs> waltzed into a camp cut off the commander's head, and then waltzed out of it. I mean, that would be terrifying. You're, like, yeah. ready to attack this city, and then one day you see your commander's... You don't even know... I mean, I, I maybe his body was discovered before, but that's a bit boring. It sounds more fun that they were sort of standing around going, God, what is the time? Where, how often is, where is our general? Where's, wait a minute. <laughs> who, wait, do you see that head just on the top of there? Does that look familiar? Oh, jeez. Yeah. That's, that's intense. Yeah. That's intense. Yeah, so, so that's her. the story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's the story of Judith. Um, so, uh, but in Renaissance Florence and just Europe in general, it became a very popular uh, story to depict in painting. Uh, and there are hundreds of different depictions of this. But my absolute favourite was uh, done by Artemisia Gentileschi. Now, Artemisia. Is a very interesting woman because she was taught. She grew up in Florence, and she was uh, she was actually taught by a neighbor named Agostino Tassi in how to paint. And the neighbor was a friend of her father's. Okay. Now, she was raped by this man in her bedroom oh, when God. she was about. I think she was. Uh, she was seventeen years old. Oh my God! At the time, and a virgin. Of course, mm. at the time she hadn't been married, and it would, you wouldn't have sex before marriage in mm. those times. Um, and so uh, her father took Tassie to court for taking his daughter's virginity, and not because of not the, the act of rape. No, it was yeah. the theft of property 
because the virginity oh, of his daughter was a monetary, you know, he could get money for it. It's ridiculous. Absolutely awful. That's horrible, um, but yeah. To make, to make it even worse, uh, Artemisia had to give evidence in court with Tassie there as well. So this young woman, 17, 18, um, talked, oh. and we actually have, we actually know what she said, which is fascinating. I love that when you get quotes from people mm. so long ago. So he, he, she had to say what happened. So he, she said, after he had done his business, he got off of me. When I saw myself free, I went to the table drawer and took a knife and moved towards Agostino saying, I'd like to kill you with this knife because you have dishonoured me. Well, that's what she... I would have been slightly more... I'm sure it was said in a much more angry way than I've yeah. said. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, oh, so... Oh, God, that's the, just gross and horrible. Ugh. Now, the reason I'm telling you that is because she then paints this painting of Judith killing Holofernes, right? Now, mm-hmm. she puts herself into the painting. So she puts... She uses herself <sighs> as a model for um, uh, uh, Judith. So, yes. and the reason we know this is because um, Artemisia gets her name from the uh, the Greek goddess Artemis, and Artemis uh, was the defender of virginity and the the uh, punisher of rape. Punisher of rape, exactly. Um, and mm. the reason we know that this is a self portrait, except for the fact that she looks the spitting image of what we know she looked like, she's actually got a bracelet on which says Artem- oh, wow. Artemis on it. So that that's um, how we know. It's a horrible depiction, but I think this is her sort of revenge, not revenge, but how she's managing to process her, her rape. Her, her fantasised revenge, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a very powerful painting. So anyway, that is our, that's the end of our of our episode, really. I mean, I think that's enough bloodthirsty. <laughs> that's three yeah, murders you yeah. got in one. So, Patrick, what's happening next week? What's in our last so, episode of the series? So the last episode of the series... Similar to, so to as a counterpoint to, um, it is very sad that we're getting towards the end. Um, but as we started with uh, the Assassins of Masiev, which is vaguely mostly because we like the game Assassin's Creed, so we thought it would be fun <laughs> to end on a, another assassination from the Assassin's Creed uh, get video games that happens in Assassin's Creed 2, which is the Patsy Conspiracy, which if you've Ooh. played Assassin's Creed 2, you will know all about because you've actually, you know, run around and done it, kind of been involved in it yourself. Um, but it is a, a a assassination attempt happening in Renaissance-era Florence. And it's Brilliant. full of political intrigue and all sorts of stuff. So Great. Look forward to it. Don't forget that you can follow us on Instagram, uh, where we post all sorts of things like trailers and even a weekly quiz, hopefully. And uh, yeah, if you don't if you don't have Instagram, that's absolutely fine. Uh, just uh, tell some friends, family, and yeah. Well, thank you very much for listening, guys. Um, I'm gonna sign off here, and I'll see you in the next one. See you next week.